have a question for you today to ask yourself, and that is, are you saved? Are you saved? You know, many religious people in the mainstream world will say that. And how do we respond? How should we respond to that question? How do we look at salvation? What does it mean for us? Obviously, we uh, look at it in a different way than most people do in the outside world, religious world. But if we're not careful, because of the concept of cheap grace that's thrown around in the world, we can undervalue the concept of salvation itself. The word can just become a religious-sounding word and really can diminish in, in in our minds. Or we can go to the opposite extreme and see it only in a metaphysical sense. Uh, You know, for the unreligious in our culture, many of them throw around this word of being saved as something not that God does for you, but that another person does for you. Think about it. In how many love songs, romantic pop songs, what are the phrases used? You save me. Your love saves me. Only your love can save me. Your sweet love saved me. I can't live another day without your love. I'm not going to sing these, by the way. Only you can put me back together. You're my everything. Think about it. Next time you have a chance to listen to a pop song, listen for the concept of saving that in our culture today we have transferred from something we, we think of as what God does and instead we think of it now as what a person will do for me. Saving us. The point is that our concept of salvation can, can be watered down in, in one way or another. It can be muddled Uh, whether it's from mainstream Christianity or from the mushy, mystical uh, saving that we hear in pop songs today. And they can blur the absolutely vital role that salvation plays in our life and obviously will will for eternity. What is salvation? In our official statement of fundamental beliefs, it says this, salvation is God's gift by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it refers to a number of scriptures. Upon repentance and baptism, God justifies us from our past sins. We then begin an ongoing process of being saved as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Our salvation will be complete at the resurrection. In observing the biblical festivals and Sabbaths, we come to understand more deeply God's plan of salvation and the steps toward salvation that we take as Christians. And then it explain some of the steps of salvation, faith in Christ, repentance, baptism by immersion, receiving God's grace, receiving God's Holy Spirit, exercising living faith, and growing in the grace and knowledge of God. If you haven't read that in a while, it might be worth pulling up the official statement of fundamental beliefs. You can find it on the website as well. But salvation is not just a matter of being saved, is it? Or or are we saved? The question really is much bigger 
than that. It has to do with the process. It has to do with where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. Let's talk a little bit about that today and get a little background on the, um, this matter of salvation. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. An angel was speaking to Joseph, Mary's betrothed husband, and was explaining about the Messiah who would come through her. He says in in verse 20, uh, through Mary, he says to Joseph, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This word Jesus that comes from the Greek, this name, the English name Jesus, comes from the Greek, Jesus, but that was not a Greek name at all. That came straight from the Hebrew, or but was borrowed from the Hebrew, uh, from the name we pronounce Joshua or Yahashua. And that was a contraction of Yahweh and Yasha. Yahweh, the name of God, the Old Testament, and Yasha, meaning to save, the verb to save. Uh, Strong's number 3467. So Joshua, as a name, meant Yahweh saves, or the Lord is salvation. And that's the name of Jesus Christ as well. As the angel explained, he will be called Jesus, or Joshua, or Yahashua, the Lord is salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. It's his identity, it's it's marked on him that that was his role, that he would be a savior interesting again as we we understand that Jesus Christ the word was the one who spoke from Mount Sinai who was the the God of the Old Testament even the name Yahweh is in the name Jesus Christ Jesus it's a part of Yahashua or that was transliterated Jesus or Jesus So that's what the angel was saying. So at the very beginning of the Gospels, we see Christ's role and his identity of being a savior, of being someone who is going to save, in this case, his people from their sins. Let's turn back to Exodus chapter 14, because we're going to look at some examples of this word, yasha, to save or salvation as it's used in the Old Testament. Again, the point is that it it can become just sort of a theological, theoretical concept if we're not careful, or metaphysical concept. And yet this was a very important word when it came down to people being delivered or needing to be delivered from certain danger. Notice in Exodus 14 and verse 13, this is where the Israelites were backed up against the mountains, And Pharaoh and his chariots were hard on their heels, and they were about to overwhelm them. And verse 13, Moses said to the people, of course, the people were complaining to Moses and said, look, we wanted to be back in Egypt anyway. Why did you bring us here? Which is not what they said. 
You know, but Moses was now being blamed for bringing him here to this point. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Now, brethren, do you think the Israelites were thinking of salvation in a theoretical, metaphysical, metaphorical sense? Or were they hearing the rumbling of the chariot wheels and the thundering of the hooves, and they were thinking, God, save us. Help us. Deliver us. It wasn't theoretical at all. They needed to be saved from an enemy right now. Like a lot of people in our world today, Like the people in the village in Nigeria that was attacked yesterday. And what, 15 people killed? One mother said that she saw her four of her grown children shot before her eyes, unprovoked. And she fled with her grandchildren. Something like 15,000 people have been killed in that insurgency in Nigeria. And, of course, things like this happening all over the world. People need to be saved. This world needs to be saved. Desperately. And we here in America worry whether Tom Brady inflated or deflated, you know, 11 footballs or not. While the whole world needs to be saved from an enemy. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 1. Notice, 1 Samuel chapter 2. The whole Bible is, is, is full of examples of this over and over, uh, over again, how God saved his people from an enemy when they were in need. This is the story of Hannah. You know how... If you read the first chapter, how Hannah had no children, her husband Elkanah um, had another wife, Peninnah, and she had children. She was, was mocking Hannah. You know, she was putting her down, as we humanly are, are uh, capable of doing when, when uh, someone else is in a rough spot and, and we have the upper hand. But notice, God, she prayed to God, God heard her, God answered her in the positive. God gave her a child. God delivered her from this situation she was in. She, she prayed, verse 1 of chapter 2, and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My, I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord. There is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. In this case, she wasn't on the verge of being killed, but she was being persecuted. She was being hurt. She was being insulted. She was being afflicted. And she needed help. And and, um, God helped her. Sometimes God uses individuals to be instruments in salvation. 1 Samuel 14 and verse 6 This is the story of how Jonathan and his armor bearer decided to go secretly to attack the 
Philistines, when, uh, when Saul and the army were vastly outnumbered, and Jonathan says to his armor bearer in, in chapter 14 and verse 6, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving, by many or by few. What a statement. That is very profound and very encouraging sometimes when we feel like we are the few. You know, it doesn't matter to God. It's kind of irrelevant how many um, ants are, 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 are helping him, how many worms are helping him. You know, we, we all are uh, very tiny and insignificant in that in one sense. And he doesn't need our help. He can accomplish his will. He can save with many or with few. But he does actually use people, doesn't he? He uses individuals, and he used Jonathan in that case to work a great, a great salvation. The point is, God is doing the saving. And he's the one who does it. He does use people. From time to time. But it's not our power. It's his power. Notice in Psalm 3. Psalm 3 and verse verse 3. We see this concept brought out by David. A number of times David was very focused on the salvation of God. He was running for his life. Often for many years. And this was not a theoretical thing to him. At all, he desperately needed God's help, intervention, deliverance. And we, we are, we'll just look at a, a few select places here, Psalm 3 and verse 3. He says, But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of 10,000 of people who have set themselves against me all around. How, how do you get that kind of perspective? Only when you see clearly that God is the one who saves. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Verse 8, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. You know, in other places we read that vengeance belongs to God. But here we read salvation belongs to God. That he owns it. He's the one who does it. He's the one who will intervene. Actually, even in this word vengeance and, and salvation and deliverance, they're, they're, they're sort of interchangeable. They're used in different, at times, different words, meaning he's going to deliver us from enemies as he delivered his people in times past. Psalm 34, Psalm 34 and verse, verse 1. Psalm 34, verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praises shall continually be in my mouth. 
My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let us together recognize who really is God. And who really the whole universe belongs to. And who really owns us. And who's going to help us as we put our trust in him. He says, verse 4, I sought the Lord and he heard me and I de- he delivered me from all my fears. Brethren, is there anything that makes you fearful? Is there anything that is difficult for you right now? He said, they looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Do any of us have troubles? Financial troubles? Difficulty just getting over the hump? It goes on and on and on. We can't seem to try to get out of the out of the out of the ditch. Or marriage difficulties. And we wait. And they go on and on and on and we get discouraged. And God is teaching us lessons along the way. Or health trials. And we are not delivered immediately. We feel like they'll go on forever. And we sometimes can get down. But he said, this poor man cried out. David understood. David recognized what life is like and the difficulties that we are beset with. And he cried out to God and he said, The Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. God is our Savior. That's a powerful statement. He will deliver us from all our troubles. It may not be that he takes them away from us automatically. It may be that we have to persevere sometimes in them. But he will deliver us. That's his name. The Lord is my salvation. Psalm 119 and verse 92. Psalm 119 and verse verse 92. He says, Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you've given me life. I am yours. Save me. You know, that's an interesting statement. Sometimes we hold back from really giving our full commitment to God. Because it takes a leap of faith. And it's sort of scary. But if we look at it the other way, what are we really giving to him? Actually, we're receiving something far greater. We're asking Him to take over our lives. We're asking Him to to take over our protection of us. We're asking Him to take over ownership of us. You know, we are the bride of Christ. We are the affianced bride that's going to marry Him. We are asking Him, take over, put me under your shield. Put me under your protection. 
I am yours. I belong to you. And ownership implies the one who's responsible to take care of. That's powerful. What, what do we have to really give up? In comparison to all the things we gain when we really under, come under the protection and ownership of, of God, Jesus Christ. There's great care in coming under his will and submitting it to, to that will and ultimately being saved from all of our enemies. John chapter 3 and verse 14. Notice John chapter 3. Let's go into the New Testament. We read here. In John chapter 3, and verse, starting in verse 13, he says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. So clearly no one is, is in heaven except for the Father and the Son and, and uh, the, the angels, etc. But no man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The verse 15, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Notice that eternal life is, is, not, is not given automatically. It's given as a free gift, but through our choices that we make, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We don't have an immortal soul. <clears throat> we have to be given eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's his identity. That's his role. That's what he's going to do. Jesus Christ came to save the world. All those who are willing, all those who who want to come under his protection and guidance and direction. But what are we saved from? Or from whom are we saved? What are the enemies that we face in our life? Most of us are not being chased around the neighborhood by someone with a gun or a knife, and we're thankful for that, very thankful for that. David was. Others have been. But we're, we're, we're protected. We're, we're basically secure today. And we're, we're, we have a great blessings. But we do have enemies, don't we? Who are some of those enemies? Notice in Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6. We don't always have physical enemies, but we have spiritual enemies which are as real or actually more real than than physical. We read about one of our enemies here in Ephesians chapter 6, one of the enemies that we need to be saved from. See, salvation involves someone who needs to be saved, an enemy who is trying to destroy that person, and an overwhelming power that is going to come and vanquish the enemy. That's what salvation involves. We have an enemy that is trying to destroy us. Ephesians 6 and verse 
Verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You notice we cannot save ourselves. It has to be from somewhere, someone outside of ourselves. Another person cannot save us. But only God and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The devil is named Satan. And what does the name Satan mean? Enemy. Adversary. God calls those things what they are. Jesus Christ is the one who saves. Satan is the enemy. And he says, we have to stand against the wiles of the devil. But do, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. All things that we are involved in that have to do with our our thoughts, our mind, our profession, our actions. That's how we're fighting against this enemy. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation, protecting our, our mind, protecting that that place where the spirit of man dwells and where God puts his spirit and gives that guarantee, that, that, that deposit of eternal life. Take that helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. So we have an enemy. We are to fight every day. We, we, we hear often about that, how we have to fight against Satan the devil, the adversary. He wants to destroy us. He wants to take our life. How does he try to destroy us? Sometimes through our own actions. You know, if, if he can get us to destroy ourselves, his job is done. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we fight against Satan. We fight against ourself. <clears throat> Sometimes we are our worst enemy. Is it not true? We have seen the enemy and they are us. You know, that's an important thing to, to recognize. You can't fight an enemy until you identify it. When we identify our human nature is our enemy, then we can fight it. If we think we're basically good, we're not as bad as everybody else, we're not going to make any progress. He says, James chapter 1 and verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life. You know, the, the idea of once saved, always saved is just simply not in the scripture, is it? Over and over you read of the process of decisions being made, of consequences for actions. He says, when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, 
which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and is enticed when he himself or she herself becomes their own worst enemy. Then when desire is conceived, it gives forth birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We've got to fight against ourselves sometimes. And, and oftentimes we, we feel that battle, don't we? And we feel that inner struggle. And we should when we're being tempted to do something we ought not. And we have to fight it to overcome it. Notice in James chapter 4, he can sometimes, not just through our own selves, but try to get to us through other people, through the world. We have to fight against Satan. We have to fight against ourselves. We have to fight against society. We hear that over and over and over again. That's nothing new. James chapter 4 and verse 1, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust, do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you don't have because you ask. do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss to spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, think about that for a moment. God is going to vanquish every enemy. He rules supreme. He will conquer every, of his, every one of his enemies. We do not want to be one of his enemies. That's just not a good place to be. And yet he says, if we are not coming out of the world, we have become a friend, a, a, a friend of the world. We've become an enemy of God. You know, years ago, one of the lies <clears throat> that was told to uh, the, the members, the brethren in the church, in the apostasy by those who were overturning the doctrines of the church was, was in the past we hid from the world. You know, we were secretive from the world. We didn't want it to uh, be uh, too nice to the world. Well, I don't know where they were, but I grew up in the church, and we were always taught to love our neighbors. We were always taught to take care of those that we can, that we have an opportunity to do. Help your neighbor. You know, if they're elderly, if they uh, need help, if, if, if you know, their animals get out, you go out and help them. I mean, the scripture talks about if you're, even if your enemy has their, their animal fall in the ditch, you, you help it out. I, I was in the same church that some of these people were in, and, and I didn't hear that we were supposed to hide from the world. And then one of the reasonings was as well, you know, that, that Jesus went out among the publicans and the sinners. 
and the harlots. You know the, the, the logical flaw in that? Yes, Jesus Christ ate with publicans and sinners, but you know they were coming to Him to repent. He didn't go into the red light district. He didn't go into the bars to try to mingle with them. It, it was totally upside down. And therefore, it was a push to get us back into the world and don't make the world feel bad and, and we should not feel, uh, you know, like we are better than the world. Of course we're not better than the world. But unless we come out of the world, we make ourselves an enemy of God. You know, brethren, we must not be ashamed of, of trying to build a culture of purity in our families and in the church, in our congregation, in our activities. If we don't fight the influence of the world, we'll be swept along with the trash that is the world. And we're putting together a fun show here one week from tonight. And we asked all the participants to write down a few sentences of, of, of why a fun show? Why should we do this? You know, are we just trying to keep our... Are people off the streets, you know, on a Saturday night so they won't get in trouble? Um, just keep our young people busy, just throw activities at them? Or are we trying to craft activities that, that support and uphold and strengthen the values we hold? Here are some responses we got. Uh, one person responded, God created our capacity to enjoy humor, music, dancing, other activities that bring joy. He created laughter. The fun show is a type of recapturing true values in regards to entertainment, which is a wonderful contrast to the perverted entertainment in the world. Another response, I think it's a nice idea to have a fun show, to have good, clean entertainment that can be enjoyed by anyone. Things can still be funny and we can still have fun and come together and share in something by doing it God's way and not the ways of the world. It gives us an opportunity to spend more time together and to serve. Another one, I believe that a fun show with talent acts as a good activity for the church in which to participate. These activities should be done in such a way as to draw the church brethren closer together and appreciate what everyone has to give, whether it be on the stage or helping or part of the audience. Really good comments, I thought. Good observations. And again, what a contrast to the entertainment that will take place the next day on Super Bowl Sunday. You know, you think about it. <clears throat> there is a group of people who every year sit around a table and, and figure out how can we be more debased than last year. How can we think of something that appeals more to the baser and baser nature of man than we did last year? I mean, there has to be a, group, a table somewhere where they do that because that's what happens. Very soon Christ will return and he's going to bring a whole new way, isn't he? And we have an opportunity to pioneer that, a whole new way of life, if we see the vision now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15. God will rule over all of his enemies. And here's the last one. He says in verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead, has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And he's, he's leading up to the last enemy, the last one that God will vanquish. He says, But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are at Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to rule all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. That's the future. And thank God that he's going to put all enemies under his feet. He's going to, to destroy all those who, who fight and corrupt and hurt. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death. For, for he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Paul was saying, okay, don't, don't you know, box me into a logical uh, corner. Of course the Father will be all in all, but Jesus Christ is going to be over all of his enemies. What an incredible future. What an incredible truth. What an incredible hope that we have, that we can look forward to, that we understand. Revelation 20 and verse 14 says, Ultimately, death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. That even death, will die. Even death will end. Even death will be a thing of the past. This is the second death. Not an ever-burning hellfire, but death will be cast into the lake of fire, and it will be over. And all those who are going to enter the, the family of God and the kingdom of God will have entered. And all those who don't want to will have had their wish and mercifully will have been put to sleep. But those who want to be a part of God's family will, will have entered <clears throat> salvation. What an incredible picture. So, what does salvation look like for us? <clears throat> as we, in God's church, as God's people, are living our, our lives daily. Well, we can see that it's described in three different tenses. In the in the New Testament, in the past, in the present, in the future. And there's significance to all of them. Let's look at all of them here for a few minutes as we make this a little more specific. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. The first is the past tense. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse, let's start in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved, past tense, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Again, that theme keeps reminding us that it's not in us to save ourselves, that we have to be saved by an overwhelming power, someone who has the power to save us, and God has the power. And thankfully, he has the mercy and the love as well to go along with that power. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we read here, you have been saved through faith. Some Protestants, again, wrongly assume that this is once saved, always saved, but it means nothing of the kind. When we look at the whole picture, we look at the whole context of the whole New Testament. But it does show us that there is a starting point to be saved. We have to come to the point, and all of us in this room have, who are baptized have come to the point in our lives when we understood that we can't do it ourselves. It's not in us. We're sick of it. We're sick of trying to do it ourselves. All of our good is just filthy rags. And we've had our belly full, you know, of the effects and the consequences of our way of doing it. And we came to a decision point. We said, I I don't want to do this any longer. There has to be a decision point. You know, some who believe in predestination... The, the, the idea that God has figured out already who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved regardless of what they do, they deride this concept as decisional salvation. Decisional salvation, as if it's a heresy to believe that we have a part to play in making the decision that we're going to accept what God has to offer. You better believe that there is decisional salvation. Turn real quick over to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And we read of that decisional point that all of us who are baptized came to We decided we were fed up with the consequences of our own actions and our own thoughts and our own ways and our own sins. And we came face to face with this choice. And God says, verse 19 of Deuteronomy 30, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. And we chose life. We made that decision to start on the road of salvation. There has to be a starting point. 
And thank God that we have the opportunity to make a decision. He says, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, to cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. Many of, of us in this room have not yet been baptized. That's okay. We're not rushing you. That's between you and God. That's a very personal decision. It's personal salvation. Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. But when you come to see that reality, that you need God in your life, that you are sick of and fed up with your own results, your sins, your faults, your mistakes, your foibles, your mess-ups, and you can't do it by yourself, that you need God in your life. That's the time when God can really start working with you. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect before that time. You can't be. Of course not. That's the starting point. You know, you're not going to be at the end point before you start. That doesn't make any sense. But when you get to that point, you need to go forward. You need to ask for counsel. You need to be baptized. But this is why some of the passages in the New Testament use the past tense you have been saved because there is a starting point to it. Salvation is a process. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. And when we do start that process, when we do come and ask God to forgive us of our sins and let the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior, cover our sins and wipe clean our, the, the, the penalty of our sins, what a tremendous peace that brings. What an awesome, incredible feeling that that brings in our life. That we are free from the penalty of death that we have earned ourselves. That's the starting point. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse, verse 7. I'll get there momentarily. 2 Timothy 1 and verse, verse 6, he says, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Again, the context, we've got an enemy. We need to be saved. We can't do it ourselves. God has the power to do it. We need to ask him to help us. We can't do it ourselves. Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So again, sometimes the New Testament does use the past tense, has saved us. He's talking about that we have been saved from everything in the past, from our sins. But it's not the totality. The Bible also speaks of present tense. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 
and verse 18. You didn't know this was going to be a grammar lesson today, right? Going all the way back to English class. <clears throat> now, we're not going too much in, into grammar. But we're, we're just looking at the words. We're looking at how it's used and how he, Paul explains it to us. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 18, there's a different use, different tense. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So here we find a present continuous sense or tense of the verb. But again, it's in, the pro, it's in the context of the power of God. We can't do it by ourselves. We are being saved. It's not just in the past. It's not enough just to say, I, I repent of all my sins in the past, and it doesn't matter what I do today and tomorrow and the next day. That doesn't make any sense at all. We have to put them all together. <clears throat> Salvation is a starting point. There is a starting point. But then it's a race to be run. And, you know, if any of you have, were in running races, foot races, you don't just start the race. I mean, how ridiculous would that be? You start the race, yeah! Everybody else goes on and, you know, keeps going around and around and around. You stay at this. At the starting point, that wouldn't make any sense at all, but that, that's sort of how this once saved, always saved, uh, really, when you think about it, how it comes out. He says, we are being saved. It's interesting that he was speaking this to the church in Corinth, and if you could find, it'd be hard to find a better example of a church that needed to be in the process of being saved than Corinth. He was talking about all the things that they needed to change, all the things that they needed to grow from. He said, it's a process, folks. We need to overcome. We need to, to get out the leaven. It's a struggle. It's a daily fight. We must not give up. Again, it... And it's certainly not of ourselves because he says, verse 20, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Greeks' foolishness. Verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. We can't do it ourselves. We are not going to save ourselves. He says he's done this, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. <clears throat> Romans chapter 7. We are in a struggle. 
once we start on this path. God helps us. He's the power. He's the strength. He's the wind in our sails. You know, not another person, no matter what Bette Midler says about the wind beneath my wings. I'm sorry. God had better be the wind in our sails or else we're not going to make it. Romans chapter 7 and verse 21, Paul says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And this was about 20 years after he had been converted, after he had been struck down on the way to Damascus, after he had been changed, after he had been turned around, after he had made a commitment to follow God. And and yes, Lord, I'll do what you say. He said, I am warring with my flesh. But the law of sin, which is in my members, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? This body of death. Who will save me? Who can possibly save me? And then he answers his own question. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the same process all of us are going through in every possible way imaginable. We all have struggles. We all have trials. We all have difficulties that we're facing. Just like the Apostle Paul. Did he have some great secret sin? No, of course not. He was struggling with the downward pull of human nature every day. And he fought against it. And his hope, his encouragement was that through Christ he could win this battle. So then, verse uh, verse 25, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we're not condemned if we are renewed day by day. If we are being saved day by day, so to speak. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But we have to repent, we have to grow, we have to get down on our knees, we have to do it today, we have to do it tomorrow, we have to do it the day after. It's a present continuous thing, isn't it? 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse verse 14. He says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. Here we see that tense again present, continuous, and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and the other the aroma of life leading to life. The point is, you know what? When we are struggling with sin and and we are fighting against it, it's pleasing to God. That's what he's saying. It smells good to God. 
when we're rebelling against him, when we're fighting against him, it smells bad. It stinks. But if we're fighting it, we're fighting sin, we're struggling to come under his protection. We're saying, save me, O Lord, I am yours. That's, that's so pleasing to him. We get discouraged sometimes. Why am I having this problem? Why am I having this struggle? Well, because we're human. Because we're still in this process. And we can get down. We can get discouraged. What God wants us to do is, no, don't get discouraged. Just keep renewing and being renewed day by day. Now, again, why is this important? Because of the, the, the world's view of the once saved, always saved skews this whole message and misses this whole message of overcoming. Why do you need to overcome if you are once saved, always saved? Why do you need to fight against the flesh? Why do you need to wrestle with the enemy, the adversary, come out of the world, wrestle with our own human nature? If you're already once saved, always saved. No, it doesn't work that way. They totally miss out on the process of growing, of overcoming, of becoming something different that we, than we aren't yet. The third tense is the future. We are going to be saved. Notice in Romans chapter, chapter 5, <clears throat> someday we will go back to the dust from which we came. All of us, that will happen to us unless we are, of course, changed when Christ comes back. Otherwise, we'll all go the way of all living and we'll need to be saved from that ultimate enemy and that is death. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We're not hopeless. We are not discouraged by this struggle. We actually are empowered by knowing that we have a Savior. We have someone who is riding up and the bugle is calling, you know. The cavalry's on the way. God allows us to be tested, as he says here, but he's going to deliver us. He says not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we're not hopeless, we are hopeful. Because we know who our Savior is. Verse 6, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's an amazing thing. While we were enemies. We don't want to remain the enemy of God, but... In the unconverted state, we are all enemies of God. And yet, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. That's an amazing thing to contemplate. 
Much more than verse 9, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So we are reconciled by his blood, but we are not yet fully saved. That's going to be at the resurrection. We are saved by his life. We are being saved, but it hasn't come to completeness. That is only completed at the resurrection when we are delivered from the final enemy, which is death. Again, what is salvation? It has to do with someone who needs to be saved from an enemy and who is saved by an overwhelming power who comes to deliver. And death is the final enemy. And that's why we can rejoice, as he says here, tremendously, because we have a future. Because we can be justified, we can be reconciled now, made right, his his death covers our sins, and in the ultimate sense, our salvation, our being saved from the final enemy, comes in the future. And, and, and what an incredible future to, to think about and to have in front of us, as opposed to the, the hopelessness that so many people today have. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 11. Matthew 24 and verse 11. Jesus mentioned this as well. <clears throat> he says, verse 12, verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So there's the challenge for us. We see this coming in the future we understand this is a warning from jesus christ if we're living in this generation when which when this is going to be happening there's a big warning don't lose what we have don't give up before the end he says verse 13 but he who endures to the end shall be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. He said that there is a future element to be being saved, and that is when we enter the kingdom and we have to endure all the way. We have to fight. <clears throat> That's why the once saved, always saved is so dangerous it, will put, it puts people to sleep, and we cannot afford to be asleep. You know, as Mr. Armstrong explained so many years ago and so many times, we are begotten now, but we'll be born at the resurrection. But we can be aborted. We can be stillborn. There is the possibility that we don't make it. It can happen. We have to finish the race. We have to endure to the end. So that doesn't happen. And God will help us. He will give us the power and the strength all along the way if we just ask him for it. If we just 
submit to him. First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. First Timothy chapter 4. So the concept of salvation is, 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 is not dry, it's not theoretical, it's not hypothetical, it's not metaphysical, it's real, it has to do with our, our past, our present, our future, our eternal life, our enemies, our Savior, how we're going to live each day, the hope that we have. 1 Timothy 4.12, he says, Paul told, told Timothy, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Come out of the world. Be different. Be brave. Don't be afraid. He said, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Notice that. Paul said, Timothy, if you do these things, no, you can't actually save yourself, resurrect yourself, but God will use you God will use you as a tool and he will work through you to accomplish his purpose and he will work through you to accomplish his purpose in others. We have a role in the salvation of each other. That's what Paul was saying. We affect each other. If we have a teaching role, we affect each other. If we have an exhortation role, we have an effect. If we have a role of being an example, which we all have, we have an effect on the salvation of one another. As we saw before in the Old Testament, Jonathan was used and his, his armor bearer as an individual in the, in the hand of God. He uses people today. We can have a part in people blaspheming God if we want to. You know, that can be our legacy. Paul had to deal with that in his past. He had actually caused people to blaspheme. Or we can have a part in people being saved by God through our life and our example and our encouragement and our day-by-day walk. You know, Mr. League has finished his race. We're sad to see him go. Just a few weeks ago, we were joking with him, laughing with him, talking about things with him, enjoying his presence, and now he's gone. And we miss him. And, of course, Mrs. League misses him the most. But you know, he's finished his race. He has gone through that process. That's amazing to think about. He's crossed the finish line. And not that that's the end. Of course, there's something 
It really begins after this, after, the, after death and ultimately in the resurrection. Mr. Armstrong explained that, you know. He's looked at the back of the book and in the end we win. But there's something to be, to be said about finishing the race and the rejoicing of that, of a race well run. Even though we are sad to, to see a friend and a brother go. But when our salvation is assured and someone has finished their race, that is tremendous. And we all pray that we will reach that point. And with God's help, we will. We can have confidence. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 5. Notice what Paul wrote. A very different thing than he had written in Romans. But this was some years later. This was perhaps a decade later, about the time when he was about to die. But he was ready. He said in verse verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. But was he discouraged about that? Was he despondent about that? Certainly, it was. There, there, there is fear in death. There is, you know, not wanting to have to go through whatever the pain is involved. But he also had this incredible perspective of of salvation and and what it meant and where it had brought him and what was coming. He said, verse seven: I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What an amazing statement. Paul was ready to go. He had finished the race. You know, sometimes we worry... Am I going to make it? Will I be in God's kingdom? What if I'm not sure? You know, if you sometimes worry about that, God is here to give you encouragement that he's the Savior. Yes, you have enemies. Yes, I have enemies. But he is the overwhelming power. And he has a plan. And if we just submit to that plan... And if we take his care over us and come under his protection and obey him and do his will and submit to that, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to be afraid. You know, if you ever worry about that, get, get some counsel. Talk to, talk to one of God's ministers. Because God doesn't want us to be going through life doubting. Yes, we need to change. Yes, we need to grow. And if there are, our conscience is bothering us, maybe we need to make some changes in our life. We still make mistakes. But over time, if, if we are obeying God and we are, are seeing, if we've repented, and if we're walking with God, we can have confidence. Yes, we still have to grow. Yes, we have to change. But we can have confidence. And that's a tremendous thing. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 
chapter 1. In verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He who has done a good work will complete it. God will start what he finishes. He will complete what he... I'm sorry, did I say that wrong? He will finish what he starts. See, just testing you. See if you're listening. There is a a beginning point and there is a finishing point. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. And if we just stay the course, we just continue to repent, we continue to go back to Him, we continue to get on our knees, we continue to repent, to ask for his help, we continue to ask for him to fill us with his mind and his spirit, he's going to complete what he started. Romans chapter 11 and verse 25, he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has it happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come, has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. He was explaining that for a time, Israel in, in large part had been rejected. Why? So that the Gentiles could be grafted in. Why? So that ultimately the Israelites could also be brought back in. And he said, the goal is that everyone would be saved. That everyone would be delivered from that enemy. All those who want to be saved. And what an incredible plan God has put together. A mystery to the world. They don't understand. But all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with him. When I take away their sins concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You know, if God has called us, if God has opened our mind to his truth, if God has led us to repentance, he doesn't change his mind. He doesn't say, whoops. I missed with that guy or that lady. Shouldn't have never started that. That didn't turn out so well. We can stop the process, but his calling is irrevocable once he gives it. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so... These also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Thank God we have a, such a loving and merciful Father who is working this all out. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways 
past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? To, to come up with this brilliant plan to create human beings and offer them an opportunity to be in his family forever, but make them make a choice. Have them have a testing ground and a training ground so they could choose and they could be ready. And he would know and they would know. Who has become his counselor, who has first given to him that it should be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So the question again, are you saved? Which is really the wrong question. The right question is, have we started on the pathway of repentance? Are we growing day by day, letting Christ live his life in us? So God can conquer our enemies, ultimately the last enemy, which is death. That's the big question. And everything is writing on how we answer that question. But Jesus Christ came to earth to die for our sins and to be resurrected, to be our Savior, our champion, our elder brother, our avenger, to conquer our enemies. Brethren, as we think about salvation, we think about this incredible plan God has. Let's be reminded of God's power and his strength and his love and his mercy and that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's our God, the God of our salvation.